0: Welcome to the Alan and Overy podcast. My name is Charlotte Hayworth and I'm a senior PSL in the global banking practice. This podcast is the second in a series which takes a look at the legislative framework the UK government is putting in place to ensure that in the event of a hard or no deal Brexit, we will have a functioning statute book on the 30th of March. The focus of this podcast will be on a new body of law being created as part of this process, which is referred to as retained EU law. Joining me today to discuss this topic are Una Harrison, a senior PSL in our Brexit team and Karen Birch, counsel in our litigation practice. Una, in our first podcast, you explained that the core objectives of the EU Withdrawal Act are one, to repeal the European Communities Act and two, to reimport or onshore EU law into UK domestic law as retained EU law please could we explore what the term retained EU law actually covers and also discuss how it's being onshored? Yes, thanks, Charlotte.
1: The EU Withdrawal Act, as you've mentioned, will be repealing the ECA. But if the UK government doesn't focus on re-importing onshoring into UK domestic law, the EU law that we had previously, there will be a gaping hole in our statute book. And so when you turn to the relevant sections of the EU Withdrawal Act, to work out whether the the law that you deal with on a daily basis does in fact form part of retained EU law. It is worth bearing in mind that there's effectively two key buckets to that concept. EU law tends to form or tends to be made by way of directive, which requires implementation through UK domestic law, and other legislation which has direct effect. And therefore the UK parliament hasn't been required to produce or pass any legislation to ensure that that becomes applicable in this country. And so limb one of the concept of retained EU law is all UK domestic legislation that implemented directives. On the 30th of March, that will still be in place. The second limb of a concept of retained EU law will be legislation such as regulations, decisions tertiary legislation, so for example, level two legislation. They had direct effect pre-Brexit and the concept retained EU law under the EU Withdrawal Act will ensure that they continue to have effect in this country post-Brexit. Now that's the starting point. That is what the EU Withdrawal Act is trying to achieve through the concept of retained EU legislation. However, typically it's not as simple as that. When you work your way through the EU of withdrawal act, you will see that the concept is subject to a number of qualifications. And so when you start with a question and you try to work out what piece of legislation you're therefore directed to, you'll need to bear these qualifications in mind. Broadly, you're going to have to work out whether what you're specifically looked at, looking at is actually an excluded matter. You're going to have to be sure that what you're concerned about is a, for example, decision that is actually onshored. Decisions tend to be decisions made by institutions such as the Commission the Council. They're not necessarily decisions made by EU bodies themselves. You will have to work through the process that a decision becomes binding to work out whether it's captured. A lot of what will be onshored will also need heavy amendment And therefore, you can't just assume that the EU law you've always looked to, a regulation, for example, will be onshored and looked exactly the same. You'll have to work your way through any secondary legislation that amends that onshored legislation to work out what the correct position is. The other point to bear in mind is in relation to what's being referred to as in-flight legislation. Now, this is relevant in the context of EU law that has historically had direct effect, so things like regulations. Where those regulations are in force at the moment, but won't actually apply until post Brexit, they're considered in flight and therefore won't be brought in through the EU Withdrawal Act. The prospectus regime, PD3, is an obvious example to demonstrate that. PD3, and for it to have effect in this country, will require another piece of legislation. And so I think the key point, when you are looking at what the EU Withdrawal Act does to your legislation in your area, is to almost work through each of those points that I've highlighted. Was the EU law originally a directive that therefore had UK law implementing it? Was it a piece of legislation that had direct effect? Um, if it had direct effect, was it in flight or will it be in flight and therefore actually won't be brought in? Is there other legislation that you'll need to consider that amends the onshore legislation? There are a number of buckets, and therefore, at least to begin with, it'll be a question of working through each step to make sure you can achieve the correct answer.
0: Thanks, Una. Um, You mentioned excluded matters. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about those? Yes, of course. Um, So whilst retained EU
1: law is picking up the limbs um, that I've talked to you through, the UK is specifically not retaining The Charter of Fundamental Rights, Um, it's also not retaining the legislative instruments uh, known as EU directives. So obviously we will be pulling in the implementing legislation uh, that the UK has done over the years, whether through primary or secondary, but not the EU directives themselves. The UK is specifically not retaining the principle of supremacy of EU law. As we've mentioned previously, one of the core objectives of the EU withdrawal Act is to ensure that that principle no longer exists post-Brexit. And finally, the UK is not retaining the Frankovitch principle of state liability. Um, and for most of you listening, I would imagine Frankovitch knowledge um, got left behind at law school. So for a quick recap, uh, Frankovitch basically allows people to claim damages from a member state in certain prescribed circumstances where that member state has wrongly implemented or failed to implement an EU directive or otherwise acted in breach of EU law. And so understandably, the UK is not retaining that principle.
0: OK, thanks for that, Una. Karen? As a litigator, I assume a key question for you is how will retained EU law be interpreted?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's an area where we saw a lot of debate and commentary during the parliamentary process. Uh, The question of how the English courts will deal with uh, retained EU law is all dealt with in Section 6 of the Withdrawal Act. And I think the headline point from that section is that the English courts will no longer be able to refer cases to the Court of Justice after the 29th of March. Uh, So the role of the Court of Justice as the final uh, arbiter in this area will come to an end. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the English courts will no longer have any regard to decisions of the Court of Justice. So you can't completely forget about uh, authority from, from the court. Uh, and the question of whether and when the English courts uh, will have to have regard to a court of justice decision uh, is going to depend principally on whether the decision was made before or after exit day. Decisions made uh, in relation to retained EU law before exit day are going to continue to be binding on the English courts other than the Supreme Court provided, of course, the decision is relevant and retained EU law hasn't been modified in the ways that Una suggested it might be. Uh, The position of the Supreme Court, as you might expect, is a little bit different. Uh, It will not be formally bound by any uh, court of justice authority, even when it's made before uh, exit day. Uh, But uh, if it's deciding whether or not to depart from that authority, it has to apply the same test as it would have applied to a decision to move away from its own case law. So this is essentially ensuring that Court of Justice authority is treated in the same way as uh, uh, other Supreme Court authority. Uh, In relation to decisions made by the Court of Justice after exit day, the position is a little bit different. Uh, Those decisions won't be formally binding on any English courts, but the English courts will be able to exercise a discretion to have regard to those decisions. So I think in summary, our relationship with the Court of Justice is set to change quite dramatically uh, after exit day, uh, but it won't mean that we can simply start ignoring all authority that's coming out of the Court of Justice. Thanks, Karen. Una, one other point
0: I wanted to pick up on. Um, you mentioned onshore legislation being amended. Um, could you explore that a bit further, please? Of course. As should be
1: clear now, the EU Withdrawal Act will onshore EU legislation as required, depending on the type of EU law we're dealing with. But once it's onshore, there'll be a number of limbs that simply just don't make sense when they form part of domestic legislation and we are no longer part of Europe. And so there are powers within the EU Withdrawal Act that are given to ministers of the Crown, for example, Treasury, to allow them to effectively deal with what's been called deficiencies that arise when the UK leaves Europe. And deficiencies are quite broad. It's meant to cover a whole host of issues that the government has foreseen. For example, it is meant to deal with provisions that have no practical application once the UK has left. It's meant to deal with provisions on functions that are currently being carried out in the EU on the UK's behalf, for example, by an EU agency. It's meant to pick up provisions that are based on reciprocal arrangements between the UK and EU member states that will no longer be in place or no longer be appropriate. And there's a host of other arrangements or rights, including through the EU treaties, that will just no longer be in place or appropriate. And the onshore legislation needs to reflect that situation. And then more simply, there's simply EU references that will no longer be appropriate when we're not a member state or when the relevant um, EU authority will no longer be the one that actually Uh, sort of has the say in certain matters. The EU withdrawal act also provides that if a functional restriction is contained in a directive and it hasn't been transposed into domestic law and therefore isn't retained by the EU withdrawal act, that this also can be a deficiency that could be corrected.
2: Uh, It's probably worth pointing out also that the law won't be deficient and therefore correctable simply because a minister decides that the EU law was flawed prior to exit Correct. I think it's well known that these powers are
1: pretty impressive. But um, if we take one of uh, the well-known issues in the financial services space um, that people have rallied against uh, since they came into being the bonus cap, this won't be an opportunity for ministers to say, actually, we'll use the powers under the EU Withdrawal Act to revise those rules. That is not the intent of those powers.
0: Um, Even in spite of that, Una, they seem like quite substantial powers do they have any limits on them apart from that, for example, any time limits or anything else? They are very wide. And um, th- there was
1: much sort of political sensitivities, uh, press focus on this element of the EU Withdrawal Act as it went through parliament. So the EU Withdrawal Act provides that secondary legislation can do anything an act of parliament can do. And um, this was the much referred to Henry VIII powers when we first saw the bill uh, last year. And um, It is worth pointing out that, obviously, the EU Withdrawal Act does try to limit these powers. There is a job that needs to be done to ensure we have a a functioning statute book. But at the same time, The EU withdrawal act ensures that these powers are are time limited Um, they can only be used for two years post the 29th of March next year. There's also restrictions in terms of what the power can be used for. So for example, um, in addition to my bonus cap example, they can't be used to impose or increase uh, taxations or or fees. They can't make retrospective provisions. They can't create a criminal offence and they can't amend the Human Rights Act.
0: Thank you, Una and Karen, for an informative overview. If you would like to find out more about the concept of retained EU law, please refer to our FAQs that accompany this podcast series and can be found on the same web page. The third podcast in this series will look at onshoring financial services legislation.